On episode 209 of the Happy Market Research Podcast, I'm chatting with Meryl Dubrow, President and CEO of Mark Research. But first, a word from our sponsor. Today's podcast is sponsored by Schlesinger Quantitative, your trusted provider of global online surveys that drive the best decisions for success in the marketplace. Schlesinger Quantitative has built an entire division of experts with extensive online research experience and an unparalleled understanding of quality drivers across panel, sample, and data. Hi, I'm Jamie Brazil, and you're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. My guest today is Meryl Dubrow, CEO of Mark Research. Mark was founded in 1965, later purchased by Omnicom, and recently purchased by the company's CEO, Meryl Dubrow. Prior to joining Mark in 2004, Merrill held senior roles at Harris Interactive, BizRate, and QuickTest. Merrill was an OG on my podcast, episode 105. Sir, thank you very much for being on the podcast with me today. Thanks, Jamin. It's, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. So what did your parents do, and how has that informed your current career? You know, that's a, it's an interesting question for me um, for a couple reasons. Number one, um, my dad, I think, was much easier to see and how he kind of molded my career. Uh, he was a business guy. He ended up to be a CFO for a company called Mediplex. He was, you know, very hardworking. He made the most of his skill set. He was an overachiever. Um, you know, frankly, I wanted to be him. And, and later in life, I, that was too lofty a goal. So I just actually wanted to be, you know, half of the person he was. He was clearly my hero and taught me so much. Uh, I think the biggest takeaway was, you know, really making the most of your skill set. With my mom, Jamin, it was just a little bit different. It was a little bit harder to see. It was a little bit harder to understand the impact of what she had on my career and how she really um, brought me up. You know, she was very organized. My mom was extremely outgoing. My dad is the exact opposite. He's an introvert. She was very detail oriented. And she, you know, she was in charge of, of dressing, you know, my two sisters and myself in terms of picking out clothes. And I can still remember going and getting my first suit and probably crying and yelling and screaming every step of the way. Went to a store called Milton's in, in Newton, Massachusetts. But she was very instrumental in my career um, because I just didn't see it right away, right? So being organized and having great time management skills and being really detail-oriented. And, and actually, one of the things she taught me was notice everything. So I tend to notice everything there is out there. I may not comment on it. So it was just really differences between my parents. Um, you know, my dad was much more of the business, the hard skills, and my mom was a little bit more of the softer skills. But both of them are incredible people. Um, Unfortunately, I lost my dad in uh, in September, so I lost my hero. But I think about him every day, and and my mom is still going strong at 82, and pretty impressive, as I say, young lady. So you are a well you're a well respected speaker uh, in the market research area. In fact, I think you just spoke at the Insight Show in Las Vegas. Yeah, I did. On thank you, first of all, I I think um, it was great, really. Really, really great conference. Uh, a big shout out to Lisa from Decision Analyst and Alice Butler and our team was heavily involved and Jamie Pulley from Critical Mix slash Dynata. She asked me to present and she's a very, very good friend of mine. And um, they had about 150, 180 people there and it was a very successful conference. And 
yes, I did present on kind of transformation and the changes of what's going on with Mark and how we did what we did and all that comes along with that. So before we actually talk about um, the the transformation that's happened inside of Mark, I, I want to kind of dig in a little bit as it relates with, you know, you are, and I've heard you speak oh, at probably half a dozen times every time I walk away and think it's great. In fact, one of our employees here at Pure Spectrum, Travis, he uh, wrote a summary piece in which he wrote about your talk and how it was one of the big highlights for him on the in the um, in the event. And so, my my question is really, you know, it's interesting that your parents, your your mom being more of the extrovert and your dad the business minded introvert, um, have that stark difference. How has that really it, those you know those their lenses or their, their, your lens of them, how has that helped you be a strong communicator? You know, my dad, um, it's interesting. If, if it takes 30 words to answer a question, my dad used 21. My mom used 4,000 and is still talking. Um, so my, my, I tend to be a storyteller. My stories tend to go on a little bit, um, that I got from my mom and my directness from time to time I got from my dad. Um, you know, Jamin, it's, it's, it's interesting because I remember my first speech that I ever did and I was asked to present and it was at the Gaylord down in Nashville. And back in the day for most of the people, they may not even know what this was, but I used to write, um, you know, your notes on what's called index cards, right? <laughs> and I remember having the index cards up on stage my first time in my, you know, probably 23, 24 years old. And I remember visibly shaking with the index card. My voice was cracking. And I was smart enough to know from a number of my mentors like John Bonney and Sanford Schwartz and Marianne Schaefer and just a whole host of people who helped me along the way, taught me that if you really want to be successful and you want to get your ideas across and you want to have people understand your ideas, you have to be a good communicator, right? I mean, if you think about it, Jamin, people can have great ideas, but if they can't communicate effectively what they are and the value... They're not going anywhere. So it really started early in my career to hone in on that skill. And I, I think if we if we really give some thought to when you go to conferences, you know, how many presenters are really top in the research community? Is it 20%? Is it 25%? So I think if you are really an okay presenter, you get elevated a little bit in the research community, because I, I think that people don't work on that craft as much as they should or could. Yeah, there's a ton that we could unpack relevant to speaker hacks and practice and all that, and all, yeah. and all of that. I, I, I personally have always enjoyed your interactive style of presentation. Uh, I think every time I've heard you speak, there's been some level of audience or a uh, person inside of the audience's participation in your, in your talks. And I think that just, you know, is an excellent idea and also something that, you know, uh, we could all of us learn from, because as soon as that happens, there's, for me, there's always two things that take place. 
One is I go from passive to active because I'm terrified you're yeah. going to call on me, right? Uh, and and the other thing is when I'm in that active mind, I'm I'm processing along with you, and thinking about the framework that your dad provided, answering a you know in 30 words using 21. I really like that because I, the rule of thumb right now is you have to you have to as a speaker you have to earn the right to be heard every 20 seconds when you're giving a presentation. And because we live in this headline context, it becomes, you know, really important that we have been, we can consolidate and summarize our actual, the takeaways and the, and the key points in a way that is memorable and uh, repeatable. Yeah. So I think you bring up some really good points. And like, if you went to Quark's or if you go to IIEX or if you go to TMRE and you say, okay, I'm going to go see 15 presenters. And the cost of that is, let's just put up a cost of uh, $1,500, right? So it's $100 a speech, basically. And my motto, one of my mottos when I present is I want everybody in the room to take away one or two things that they can integrate into their business the second they get back to their office, okay? You know. I have trouble with going to, um, you know, seeing an author present, right, on automation or technology. I, I understand what they're saying, but I have trouble drawing a link between what they just said and integrating that into my business right away, right? So I try to use practical experience. I, pro I try to use real life examples. I tell it like it is. I got up on stage last week and I, made mention of a ton of mistakes that I've made along the way. Why? Not to poke fun at myself, but to say, look, we're all human. We're all in this together. And you've got you've to learn by those mistakes. And I think that's really, really incredible. And, you know, you want it to be memorable, right? You want it to be something that people say, oh, you know, um, he's a little crazy, which, which I am. I've done to make a point. You know, I usually present in a suit and tie, a red tie. I usually have a, a Coca-Cola on stage. I usually have a thing of water and I walk around a lot. I'm not a podium guy. And to make a point, I basically threw off the suit and threw away the soda once. And I actually took off all my clothes um, and got down to, you know, basically shorts and a T-shirt and actually flip-flops. And I presented that way. And the point I was trying to get away across was, you know, get comfortable with being uncomfortable, right? And the reality is we're, there's a lot of people who are uncomfortable in situations, but they don't ever get comfortable with them. And that's the point I was trying to make. And people still remember that. And they talk about it. A few years ago at the CEO Summit, I did the closing standing on a table. And I went LeBron. I ripped up all my notes and I threw it. And people sent me pictures. But they remember that because you want to have those takeaways and integrate those within your business. If you don't, you've wasted time and money. I mean, people don't realize it, Jamie. If they go to a conference, right? If they went to Qualtrics this week, right? So let's assume it's what, three days, three and a half days? Well, if you boil it down, that's 1.6% of the whole year that they spent at Qualtrics. Now, I'm not saying Qualtrics wasn't a great conference. I'm not saying it wasn't worth it. And I'm not saying it, it, there weren't takeaways, but let's just, for argument's sake, say there wasn't. They've wasted one and a half, 1.6% of their entire year at that conference. That's a big chunk, right? I mean, if you think about it, and, and 
I think that as a presenter, I've always felt that you've got to deliver. You've got to make sure. That's why when I get off stage, you know, I talked to Jamie Holy and I was like, was that what you expected? Did, did I deliver? Because if not, shame on me. And I'm not doing it to get on a plane. I'm not doing it from an ego standpoint. I'm doing it to give something back. That's the only reason to do it. And I take it seriously. And I want to be the highest rated presenter. And I want to continue to get better each and every time I present. That's my goal. This, this, principle, of, this principle of adding value as opposed to asking is something that all of us can learn a lot from. I was, I was meeting with one of my uh, marketing managers yesterday. Molly and in the conversation we were retooling a um, an outbound you know direct mark uh, mail piece super straightforward you know we've all seen them we all get them probably a hundred today right so nothing particularly magical about it and we we retooled the whole thing so that not once did we one have an ask or two talk about ourselves it was entirely based on adding value to the customer and giving them. Uh, shortcuts to their insights that they could employ literally that very day. So in their, in their company. And, and, and I think as we, as we start, if we can change the way that we communicate from, cause nobody cares about us as much as I like to think they wake up in the morning and can't wait to get to this podcast. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, what people really care about is themselves. And, and so the, the reason that people will keep tuning in just using happy market research as an example is because they are connecting with the fantastic guests and they're finding value in the content that that we're, that we're generating and they're and it's making either themselves or their business experiences better at some regular interval intervals right and and I and there's just you know we have to move away from this level of entitlement and into a level of you know we we really are if our marketing our our sales efforts our personal brands are you know, and the strength of those is, is really a direct relationship to how much value we've added in our in the communities, whether it's at home or or in business. I could not agree with you more. Total, totally agree. I, I think um, it's just well said. It really is, and I believe it. So let's talk a little bit about Mark. This is a company that has been around for decades. You've been the CEO for some of those. And recently you acquired the business. What was your thesis going into it and going into that process that gave you, I mean, that I know as a, um, you know, previous CEO, that is a, that's a heavy lift trying to do a acquisition, especially out of an Omnicom. Uh, what was your thesis going into that, into that process? Yeah. Um, just getting to the other side of it. Um, I don't think I knew every piece of what was going to have to be done um, until I was on the other side of it. All right. I, I, I'm extremely fortunate, Jamin, that I have a great support system. I've done, my parents did a great job um, teaching my sisters and myself how to stand on their own two feet. And being in the industry for 35 plus years, I've been very fortunate to have access to a lot of industry contacts that are great friends of mine, confidants, mentors, and people that are have tremendous experiences. So like yourself, Jamin, and um, Steve Schlesinger, and I reported at one time to a guy named Sandy Schwartz, and being able to call on those people 
um, and having them help you get to the other side of this. And, and I remember something that um, Steve Schlesinger had said at the beginning. He said, look, you're not going to see every move that you got to make right now today. Just take it one day at a time. And I know that that's, you know, everybody in sports says, okay, you know, we're going to take it one game at a time, right? But it really level set it a little bit because, you know, I believed in the company, I believed in the strategy, I believed in the legacy, and I wanted to see this through. And um, and I wanted to make sure that I did it the right way. But to have that support system in my in my corner to bounce things off of from time to time really, really helped me. So it was really just get to the other side and continue to um, to have it be seamless, to have no bumps, to have business as usual. And as it turned out, we frankly were able to do that. I'm not sure if you can, I'm not sure how much of this you can divulge, but uh, so, but I, I am really interested in this, you know, as the CEO of the company, you know, owned underneath Omnicom, I have to believe you had a very attractive um, uh, compensation plan. Where was the motivation to you know take it, take control of the company uh, in a uh, an absolute basis? Like like what was what was on the other side of that that made a lot that made that risk worth it? Well, it's probably TBD, right? Because you know the final chapters haven't been written; they won't be written for many many years. So we'll, when when that is written, we you can ask me the question again. But what I think is going to happen is this. Um, and what has happened, you know, Omnicom, I'd been there for 14 and a half years, great company. Um, they, uh, in Q3, the beginning of Q3, they were selling a company and they were going to, that they'd owned for 25 or 30 years, that they were going to make a fair amount of money. They wanted to take that opportunity, take the opportunity to um, divest a number of companies in Q3 that strategically didn't fit into their strategy moving forward. Right. So I met with uh, my bosses, uh, two of them in on the East Coast, and quickly it was, look, you know, we've got a list, and and Mark is on the list, and you know, here are some choices of what we can do here. But whatever we do, you got to tell me quickly, like less than a week. And oh, by the way, it has to happen in Q3. And oh, by the way, we were already in Q3. So, Jamin, you know the deal. <laughs> You've looked at a number of companies um, when you were all over the place at Focus Vision and, and a number of other spots. You know, doing your due diligence can take a little bit of a while. But, but having been the CEO for 14 years, I know I didn't have to do due diligence. I knew about the company, the strategy, the people. I knew what things we could do, what things we couldn't do. And decided that, um, again, the legacy, the company, the strategy, the people within it wanted to continue that and was able to work out a an arrangement with Omnicom, a deal to buy the company. I had to personally guarantee everything. Um, and I felt comfortable with that because of the team we have and the strategy that we developed and the partners such as Zappi and such as Pure Spectrum who can help us to get to the other side of this. 
And that kind of leads into really my another question for me about that process because I mean it's a it's expensive to buy a company. Yep. And and I was wondering was it you know was it a debt service or you know rich grandpa or um, you know is, were you able to were you able to do it through leveraging other private equity you know another private equity entity yeah yeah no i my um there's no rich grandpa i both my grandpas are, are unfortunately passed away a long 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 time ago i only met one um my dad was able to retire very early in life uh, at 50 and a half which is amazing and didn't have to go back to work i still to this day have no idea how he's able to do it and how he was able to live for 30 plus years on what he had, but he did, and he lived a great life. Um, no, it was all done. Um, I'm not going to get into the mechanics of the deal, but it was, it was, my, my parents were poor growing up. Um, it's interesting, Jamin, that my mom didn't have her own bed until she was 22 years old. She always, she shared a bed with her aunt, um, and they lived, I think six people lived in a two-bedroom apartment in Montreal. And you know, so anything that my dad accomplished was self-made. If, if, if I've accomplished anything, it's self-made, um, was able to, um, draw on, um, certain dollars that I had and then be able to, um, develop and, and pay Omnicom over, over some time. Um, that was the mechanics. I bought the balance sheet of it. And, um, so I bought, obviously that means I bought the receivables, but I also bought the payables. Um, so it, it has been an interesting go because, you know, we've, the transition happened about, um, a little over six months ago and I pulled the bandaid off. So what does that mean? So nobody knew, and that was a hard part of, what I did because I had to keep a big secret that I was doing this. And oh, by the way, a mile and a half away, I was building a 9,000 square foot office. <laughs> so I would leave secretly for 45 minutes here and there for meetings over at the new office and pick out tile and pick out rugs and colors and blah, 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 and had to put up walls and tear down walls. Um, that was the hardest part. And then built an office in 20, 28 days. So I did, we did that. Every system that we have now is totally new. So we have a new accounting system. We have a new payroll system. We have new benefits. We have a new 401k. We have new IT. We have a new, we have a new office here. The last thing is I'm in the process of building an office in Greensboro, North Carolina. And that thankfully with the, with the lead of uh, uh, Rob Arnett and Brad Seipel and Susan Hanks have done a magnificent job taking that uh, and that'll be unveiled in about uh, two weeks, our new office there. But everything else is new and, and was able to put my stamp on it in terms of we did some different twists with the 401k plan that we set up. And it's been, it's been really unbelievable. It's been a, it's been a whirlwind. It's been, we're moving at light speed. I can't believe it. Um, at one time, uh, down the road, I'll think back and say, wow, how did we pull this off? But I, but I think it was because of the talent at Mark and the trust that we had within each other and the belief that we had one common goal, which is just move this company forward. 
And it's been it's been really amazing. It's very, very touching. I'll tell you a quick a quick story, Jamin. Um, when I was going to announce the change in ownership, I was going to do it on a Monday. And the reason I was going to do it on a Monday is because I didn't want to ruin anybody's weekend. Right. I didn't want anybody to panic. I didn't want anybody to freak out. And unfortunately, uh, my dad had passed away, um, which is interestingly enough, about an hour after the deal was finalized, which I think it was his time to go. And he just said, OK, Merrill, you're, you're good. You're on your own. I've seen this one through as well. And um, <clears throat> so I announced the change of ownership on a Friday instead of a Monday because I had to fly down to Florida for my dad's funeral and to do the eulogy, which was probably the hardest thing I ever did in my life. 40 minutes um, talking about my hero who had just passed away. Um, and the I remember specifically what some people had done. It's a little bit of a blur, but people like Jenny Lovejoy, who was on our team, started a round of applause and was just really um, gracious with her comments. And, and they gave me a standing O. The company gave me a standing O, and they thanked me for doing what I did. And and there's been no looking back. I mean, it's been it's been amazing journey with this team that we have. I knew that they were amazing and great, but experiencing what we have, Jamin, brought it to a different level. Isn't it interesting how we as a community um, knit together during those particular times, and even a to the next level, right? So you think, okay, my, my team, my management team, my staff, we're, we're all in. And then all of a sudden you have some major milestone or hill that's been taken or whatever achievement. And then it just levels up the whole team. Um, and it just, I think that really speaks to the importance of culture inside of an organization and, you know, the accessibility to the executive team in order to not from a self-serving perspective, but just to make sure that it's a genuine place where people want to, can, in fact, thrive. Yeah, I think you're 100% right. You know, it, it's interesting because back in 2005, um, a good friend of mine, Paul Kirsch, was going to work for Jude Olinger, Olinger Group down in, down in New Orleans. <clears throat> and then, unfortunately, um, Katrina hit that Category 5 hurricane hit and really um, left tremendous damage in New Orleans. And I remember that what, what the thing I remember most about that is for 36 hours, I would dial Jude Olinger's number every 10 minutes, trying to get in touch with him. And finally I did and I said, look, I'm sorry about what's going on with your great city and your company and your staff. If you can get yourself to Dallas, you can work out of our office. You can all stay in my house for as long as you need. Um, if you need food, if you need money, wh whatever you need, we're here. And I think that when something happens like that, you know, when all of a sudden there's a change of ownership, I kind of forgot that people um, kind of rally, right? And, and are excited about what's next and just want to help any way possible. And that's really what's happened with the Mark team. It's really meant a tremendous amount to me, my family, and, you know, even shed a tear or two uh, along the way. So what has been the biggest challenge 
you've faced since becoming not just the CEO, but now the owner? Yeah, I, I think, you know, pulling the Band-Aid off, most companies that divest from Omnicom keep their shared services for a fairly long time, whether that is accounting or IT or even in the same location. And I, I didn't do that. We pulled the Band-Aid off tremendously quickly. Um, so within, you know, less than a month, we had little to no shared services. So that's that's number one um, that I think has been has been a little bit challenging. I think understanding for me personally, understanding a little bit more of, OK, some of my day now has to go towards not just receivables and billings and not just cash flow and working capital and the bank account and making sure you have a line of credit, making sure that you have a great working and banking relationship that goes hand in hand. You know, I didn't have to do that at Omnicom. Omnicom took care of that and did an amazing job with that. So that never fell on any of the CEOs. I mean, sure, we knew about the receivables and what it was, but we didn't agonize over it as much as we do, you know, now and worry about it. So that's really been the biggest challenge is probably repurposing a little bit of my time and it's changed you know my sort of to-do list every day yeah i think there's a few that really jump out number one um now that we're able to invest in what we want to invest in. Um, we, our, our senior team looked ourselves in the mirror and, and myself led that charge and said, okay, we need a new leadership model. We need some help with some strategy. And rather than the six or eight or 10 of us, whatever it is, continuously working on that, we brought in an outside consultant, Bill Morley, who did a really good job with that. Um, and helped us streamline things. He put us through some really interesting tasks um, that I think on the surface came in scratching your head saying, is this really going to work? And it did. He was really, really solid. So I think one of our successes was admitting you need some outside help, number one. You know, number two, we, we used a tool called the Acumax Index, which has helped us with um, reporting structure has helped. It's a it's a tool that um, assesses your talent, how you integrate within a company, and it helps you with hiring and training and integrating. And um, you know that's helped us tremendously. And you know, whereas the past few years we've had you know high teen turnover rate, we've had not one person leave. Not one person has left the company. Um, and I think that they believe in what we're doing. They want to see this through too. And I, I think that's the biggest success. The fact is we've been able to do it with this team. You know, Jamin, you've been through a lot of acquisitions and a lot of them, there's tremendous transition, right? You don't have a spot with them. Typically it doesn't always go, okay, there's some type of ownership change and every single person in the company has a job. And every single person in the company stays six months later. It's not usually the same, but that's what's happened here. So those things, I think we have a huge success is the, um, the line of products from do-it-yourself 
um, what we call accelerated that we have in our pipeline is pretty impressive. Zappi's been an amazing partner. Pure Spectrum's been an amazing partner. And I think if there's one takeaway from anything I say today, it's find the right partners. And that's different than go finding a partner. Anybody can find a partner. But as you know, most partnerships don't work. Most product launches don't work. Find the partner that works, that communicates the same way you do, that um, your goals line up tremendously, and that you are you have the right strategy and the right partnership and the right clients and the right staff to move your business forward. And I think if one of those doesn't line up, the product's not going to be successful. So we've had some tremendous success with that uh, in the in the last you know year or so, and especially in the last six months. You know, the point that you made about yeah. investing in the company, staff, you know, your, your tribe, they feel that there's a, there's, yeah. there's a tangible, um, a tangibleness to that, that, I mean, it's not technically tangible, but it is, I mean, I'm confident it's measurable at, at a minimum. Right. So, um, and that creates a lot of buy-in and excitement and enthusiasm. And it's interesting if, if, you know, you think about you and, you know, I'll pick on an interview I had heard, this goes back at least a decade with Jeff Bezos, where he was talking about, I don't care about the short-term performance of the stock. I'm thinking about what's right. it going to look like in seven years. And, you know, having that kind of a view and then having the autonomy to be able to act on that point of view is a very, very powerful weapon. Yeah. You know, culture to me is very important. You know, if you think about the time you're at work, going to work, thinking about work, driving home from work, it's probably, I don't know, 70% of your awake time. And if you're not going to enjoy yourself, then you're not going to have a happy life, right? So the culture here is very important. We've established so many different programs since the ownership change. So one is training. You're like, Merrill, that's kind of basic. You put in training. Yeah, because we had to cut out a lot of that under our prior ownership. I'm sending somebody to the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting to hear Charlie Munger and to hear Warren Buffett. It's called the Rising Star Conference. And we're, we're investing in, in our staff that way and sending them there. And, and they'll be waking up at 4 a.m. to go see the annual meeting. That's something that a lot of people don't get an opportunity to do. We're sending five people to a Haiti trip with Jim Bryson for the Joseph School later this year. So we're, and it's gonna be five people who are in different aspects of our business. So it might be a project manager, a research manager, an account manager, maybe a, you know, a DA or something like that. So we've got a lot of task force that we've set up. You know, we made a lot of mistakes where we had our senior team really trying to move the business forward and we're, we're doing everything, including our day jobs. But we have had a lot more task force set up. We've Got our goals now connected to business objectives, you know, and we we developed this this leadership model. We've also got, um, you know, admitting we made mistakes, admitting that I made mistakes in front of the whole company. That's really helps a lot. We've um, we've got an, a, what we call a mark dialogue team and a fun committee. So they tell us what fun are we going to have. I mean, I, I walked over to, to somebody on the, um, we do a year-end video who's putting together year-end video. I said, KVD, I have a few ideas on the year-end video. And I said, you know, here they are, ba-da, ba-da, ba-da. Yeah, Meryl, you know, 
that's great, but I think we're going in a different direction this year, and I don't know if we'll be able to incorporate them, which translation means we're not incorporating them, but thanks. And, and the reason I tell you that little boring story that happened yesterday was I love the fact that she felt strong enough to say that to me, right? Most people would have said, okay, I'll, I'll put it in there. But if it doesn't go into their strategy of what they're trying to do and project, then good for her to say no, right? And we've got a lot of that. We have, you know, we had everybody redo all of our uh, printers, what we call our printers before it was, it was Dirk. And, and before we had our conference rooms were named like um, Hendrix and, you know, Presley um, and Lennon, right? For John Lennon, Elvis Presley and Jimi Hendrix. I could never get him to do it Boston because we would have a constant argument about the band Boston wasn't that big, although I think they were big. And we're just having a lot of fun while we're accomplishing a, a great amount for our clients and driving insight and making sure we're delivering on each and every project. So it's, it's a good time. It really is. It's a fun time. It's a good time. People are really enjoying themselves. You talk a lot about mistakes, and I do too, and, uh, and even in, a, in, in yep. a public setting. What is one that stands out to you, and what was the learning from it? Time. Time. I think that um, two things jump out at me. Number one, it's what I'll call a 16-month dance. So when you hire a new employee for five or six months, they'll come in and everything they say is fresh and you're excited. Oh, I got it right this time. And then there's three or four months of scratching your head. You're like, really? I thought I heard that. And then there's three or four months. Okay, I made another mistake. Now what do I do? So that adds up to like the 16-month dance. It's a what I'll call a merrillism. And I'm trying to cut that down. How do you cut that down to eight or nine months? How do you minimize the, the mistakes that you've made? You know, the other one is... Um, I was at my my daughter's soccer game, and if you remember, Jamin, for anybody listening who has a um, a daughter or a son who plays soccer, if the ball, as a youngster, an 8, 9, 10, 11-year-old, if the ball goes to the left, the entire team goes to the left. When the ball goes to the right, the entire team goes to the right. And that's really what I felt the market research community is. And biometrics, bam, everybody goes after it. Sentiment analysis, eye tracking, right? The new one is AI. And I finally realized we took a lot of passes at big data and whether it was sentiment analysis a few different times and social listening. And the problem is we didn't really, it wasn't successful for us. Whether we didn't have the right clients, we didn't have the right strategy, we didn't have the right tools, we didn't have the right staff, it didn't matter. And I wasn't, I was going to make I wasn't going to make that mistake again. And that's why we were in search of our partners. We really spent a lot of time on our partnerships these time. And we're honored to call, you know, Zappy and Ryan Berry and, and his entire team, a partner of ours. We're, we're excited to call Pure Spectrum and Michael McCrary and Jamin and Travis and everybody connected to your company, a partner. We're honored. We take that seriously. And I think we did a much better job with that this time. And it's really paying off dividends. So it's, I think if you, you know, if you think about um, personal assessment and if you have self-awareness, I think you're much better off in business. And, and you know, um, how many people, Jamin, or what percentage of the people really are self-aware and know really who they are? Because I think it's pretty low. 
Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think it transcends business and applies to life. Absolutely. So market research, as you said, is a bit of a game of swarm ball. But if you kind of separate yourself from that view, how do you think market research is going to be different in five years? You know, I think consolidation is going to continue to really streamline this industry. So when you think about um, everything that's happened, right, you know, you've got Dynata, which is the old research now, right? So they pick up um, SSI and and that dust on that acquisition, I don't even think is dry yet. And wow, boom, now they've got critical mix in it as well. I, I can tell you that in the past week, I've heard from five to seven people who all are either selling their company or looking to buy companies. I'm not going to mention any names, but um, the reality is that the consolidation is really going to um, not just continue. I think continue at, at, at a different rate than we've ever seen, number one. Number two, I think that all suppliers are going to be forced into doing as consultants. So I think that a lot of client organizations are building um, services in-house and they're going to need consultants to really tell them what it means and maybe even implementation. So does market research go into this um, marketing spin a little bit more than we have? I think so. Um, And I think those are a couple of the the big takeaways that are going to happen down the road. I mean, everybody is, yes, is do it yourself and accelerated going to have much more of a high percentage in five years for sure, for sure. But I I think the industry is is going to be, suppliers are going to be forced to be consultants, whether they know how to do it or not. And if they don't know how to do it, they're not going to be around. That's a, I completely concur with that point of view and by consultants in a lot of ways what we're talking about is adding value to the product that you've been you know you're you're providing and uh, or service that you're providing to your customer kind of talk about full circle um, yeah so uh, what is your personal motto Wow I have a few um, 900 seconds 15 minutes a day get better at something I don't care if it's be a better son, be a better husband, be a better friend, be a better brother, be a better presenter, be a better business executive, um, understand social media a little bit better, um, understand how to put together a PowerPoint presentation. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's a personal nature. It doesn't matter if it's business. Take 15 minutes a day, take 900 seconds and get better at something. And I think if you do that, sky's the limit. You know, I'm a, I'm a classic. I'm never going to be the smartest guy in the room. I'm a classic overachiever. Or as one of my a contact in the industry, Roger Green, said to me years and years and years ago, you're a talent maximizer. I take that um, as a compliment. And I take that as a tribute to my father, who was the same. You know, make the most of your skills. I think the worst thing anybody can say to you is, oh, there goes blah, blah, blah. They're an underachiever. I think that that I'd rather get punched in the stomach a thousand times than, than have somebody say that about me. My guest today has been Meryl Dubrow, CEO and owner of Mark Research. Meryl, thanks for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast. Damon, thank, thank you. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure being here uh, today. 
The honor is all of ours. Thank you so much for your time. Everybody else, if you would please do me the kindness of posting this episode on LinkedIn or Twitter. It helps other people like you find valuable content. And as always, if you have thoughts or opinions, you can reach out to me on any platform at Jamin Brazil. I'm also looking for specific tech companies. So if you are a market research technology company and you're interested in being featured for free in one of our technology corner uh, segments, we would love to hear from you. Have a great rest of your day. Schlesinger Quantitative is proud to have sponsored this podcast. Schlesinger delivers comprehensive online survey solutions, including survey programming, world-class project management, intelligent recruitment, survey hosting, and data delivery services. An uncompromising commitment to your success sets them apart.